We'll turn now in God's holy words to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter one. In this letter, Paul the Apostle is writing to Timothy, and he is warning him about the dangers of following certain teachers and going after fables and endless genealogies. And then he points out the role of the law. I'm going to read of this now as we read from verses 1 to 17. Verses 1 to 17. And we're going to be paying close attention then to verse 17 for our preaching. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Let us hear God's holy word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, And Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I beseech thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith so do now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned for which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm but we know that the law is good If a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is made for a righteous man, but not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for for unholy, profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves and mankind, for man-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause, I obtained mercy that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, 
the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of the King of Kings himself, what one man, what one name do you think of when you think of Christianity? You may think of Peter. But probably most likely, the other person you may think of is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. We may think of the Apostle Paul for many reasons. He wrote much of the New Testament letters which we have in our Bibles. And we praise God for that. But also because of the massive transformation that, t- that took place in Paul's life. His story is known not just within the church, but also outside of the church as well. He went from being a person hating and persecuting the church of Jesus Christ to being one of its greatest champions, you could say, proponents and preachers that came out in that period. He went from persecuting the church to suffering for it and with it to the glory of God. Now, there is a danger, isn't there, with any men that the Lord raises up of making too much of the instrument, of making too much of any mere man, isn't there? We're all mere dust, all of us, every single last one of us, the greatest among us to the least among us. We are but dust. And we can make his conversion, which he's spoken about here in this first chapter, about Paul. Well, look at the massive change that has taken place in Paul. Rather than about that God who changed him. The danger is we can rob God of the glory that is due to his name. The danger is we fail to see how wonderful God is and how much honor is due to his name, how much glory is due to his name, and how highly we should view him. It's almost as if Paul realized this when he was talking about this in verses 13 onwards. I was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, and I obtained mercy, verse 13. But at the end of it, verse 17, and this is the verse we're going to be looking at here this morning. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the text we're going to be looking at here this morning. It's almost as if Paul knew this. He put this at at the end of this little section. No, no, not to me. To God alone be the glory. God alone be the glory. During the time of the Reformation, the reformers, the Protestant reformers, came to summarize their teachings in five solas, they're called. And the word sola in Latin really is the word only in English. And we believe, as they did, sola gratia, which is grace alone. They also believed in sola fide, faith alone. They believed, as we do as well, solus Christus, Christ alone. They believed, as we do, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. That final authority that 
standard by which all other authorities are measured and to see if they are true, discerning between the holy and the profane. These teachings were at the core of the Protestant Reformation. But they summarize it as well, if these are all true, soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. These alones, without them, we really drift back into the direction whereby the medieval church went, eventually forming the Roman Catholic Church as we know it today. It separates a true gospel from a false gospel. The true gospel gives God the glory. The false gospel does not give the glory alone to God. All of these are vitally important. And we face a challenge today, don't we, friends? In contemporary Western Christianity. I say Western Christianity because there are places around the world where the, the cause of Christ is being advanced. But in, in the West... God is not being honored and glorified as he ought to be. Gone is the honor in many churches and the glory of God often in many former churches. Replaced by entertainment, replaced by the opinions of men, replaced by the glorification of men, replaced by false worship, replaced by a false gospel and eventually most tragically replaced by a false Christ. The glory of God must be vitally important to all the church, regardless of what age you are, regardless of what role you play in the church, to God alone be the glory. And we must, out of a love for God and in a love for our neighbor as well, not ever seek to rob God of the glory that is due to his name. Because in doing so, we turn aside to idols. So let us see this morning as we look through this verse why we ought to give God all the glory. All the glory. Verse 17. We're going to be looking at this verse under four headings. The first heading we're going to look at is God's unchanging reign. God's unchanging reign. Verse 17. Now unto the king eternal. Now unto the king eternal. Another way of saying this, um, another alternative way you could render this from, from the Greek is the king of ages, the king of the ages. We have this present evil age that we live in today, which will eventually come to an end. And of this evil age and of all others, he has been king. There is never one moment in, in eternity past or in eternity future or in this present age where God has not been king, the king eternal. In other words, his reign as king will never, ever change. He is the king eternal. Outside of him, in the future, in the past, there's never been one moment in eternity or in time, where God has not been king. He is without beginning and without end his reign. 
He is outside of time. He is the one himself who brings everything into existence by speaking it. Such power does he have in this unchanging reign that he has. This eternal king reigned before the foundations of the world. And without him, there is nothing. Nothing can happen. A leaf cannot fall from a tree without God's permission. Without him, there is nothing, nothing can happen. There isn't a single breath that goes in and out of your lungs that can take place without God. And dear friends, he simply reigns. He cannot deny himself. This is who he is. Pure. Pure in every aspect. He reigns over every particle of dust, every hair on your head, every beat of your heart, every breath taken. He reigns over all. See, it's very easy for us to think of God as he's just like us. Sure, we have some, we love things, and God is the most perfect part of that. God is different to us, dear friends. He is different to us. We have love for things. We have affections for things. But God is love. We may have skills in certain areas. We may have elements of wisdom. But God is is wisdom. I put it like this. Our God never changes. Never changes. He is never passive. He is. He can never be more loving. Than he is. He can never be more perfect. Than he is. And he can never reign. More than he currently does today. He reigns over your waking up. And he reigns over your getting here at the church. He reigns over your final moments. He reigns over everything. He's the only king that can ever be called eternal. No one else can be called eternal. No one else can. This king of the ages, this eternal king, is is he not worthy of all honor, all glory due to his name? And the answer should be in our hearts, a resounding amen. Yes, he is worthy of all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. You hear of kings in power remaining in power for a long time. You've, you've read history books, and you, you hear of people reigning for a long period of time. And, and there's almost a sense in which they might be not the greatest rulers, they might not be the most moral rulers, but you have an almost a sense of respect for the length of their reign. There's a great challenge and difficulty of holding on to power. In history, powerful rulers like Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great reigned as king of Macedonia and over what became the Greek Empire for 13 years. 13 years. And yet he's still remembered thousands of years later. Um, Even in the media of recent times, people are talking a lot about Vladimir Putin and how he's been in some way, shape or form in power in Russia since about 1999. And we're like, wow, people talk about that. That's a long time. Uh, Staying in power for long periods of time, people are almost like, they almost have a grudging respect. Now, obviously, I've mentioned Vladimir Putin, not the greatest example of a great leader, but... People have this idea of greatness over the length of a reign, don't they? And they give value to that. But what about God's reign? This is a reign that is without beginning and without end. And he has never once 
struggled to hold on to that power. It has never been something that has been a close battle. It has never been something in question. A never-ending reign. We hear of Alexander the Great in history. He's supposed to have never, ever lost a battle. People still talk about it. There's documentaries been made about it. How, in 13 years, he, he conquers a huge amount of North Africa and, and parts of what's now modern-day Turkey. How did he never lose a battle? This is incredible. One of the greatest military leaders in history. And people still talk about it thousands of years later. But God has complete and total control over everything. Over everything. Compared with God, Alexander the Great's empire was nothing. It was but a drop in a bucket. Not even close to the same. God has never struggled. He created all. He controls all. That mere men cannot understand. People marvel and give glory to mere men, don't they? They think, wow, if they meet uh, kings and princes, people might be so nervous that they start shaking in their presence. But do we tremble before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is a reign that lasts them all? We give him the glory because he is the King eternal. And giving him the glory, we ought to prioritize him. And his bride over everything else, shouldn't we? <clears throat> Prioritizing church and worship and our, our service of God above everything else. Above sports, hobbies. What do we do with our money? Our decisions? Where we live? Is it to God alone be the glory at the centrality of the decisions we make? Not all of us are called to serve in a church office. But even when you're choosing that job, does God get the glory out of it? In school, does God get the glory out of it? His rule, dear friends, we may feel that the enemies are all surrounding us in our modern culture. And to be a Christian is becoming harder and harder, isn't it? But be reminded, dear friends, his rule is never changing. They just think for a moment in the sun they're getting the upper hand. But dear friends, their defeat, if they do not trust in Jesus Christ, is assured. His rule can never go away. Rulers, kingdoms, and powers come and go but the reign of our God is forever and ever. Now unto the king, eternal. So God's unchanging reign, number one. Number two now, God's undying reign. God's undying reign. It says in our text, now unto the king, eternal and immortal. Immortal, we'll just be looking at that one word, immortal. The word here translated immortal can also be translated imperishable or incorruptible. Now we think of a reign of a king, a mere earthly king. We know that all earthly rulers, they die. There will come a moment where all mere finite creatures will become 
dust one more. They will perish. They will die. It says in Psalm 82 verse 7, But ye shall die like men. Die like men, they're speaking of the rulers of the world, those judges. God's undying reign is not that it will just not come to an end. We've dealt with that. It's not just that it won't come to an end. It's far more than that. It's that it cannot be corrupted. It will not be tarnished in any way. When we hear of corruption in rulers today, we think of moral corruption. We think of, um, uh, in recent times, it would be unthinkable for the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom to be living with a woman out of wedlock. And we had that recently. 20 years ago, that would have been a national scandal. Today, people don't bat night it. Moral corruption, we don't mind today. We think of things like against the law. We think of people taking bribes. We think of people doing things that are wrong and unethical. But this reign of God is without the least taint of decay. Without the least taint of even the stench of death. When we buy food, one of the first things we'll do, especially if you're looking for milk, you'll check the best before date, won't you? You don't want it to be the next day or the day after that. Food begins to perish, doesn't it? As soon as you bring it home. And if you try, you, you open your milk one day, you want to put in your cereal, and you just you get that really, really bad smell, and you realize the milk has gone off. Is it pleasant in that moment? Not at all. Not at all. The stench of death, decay, follows us around every corner of this fallen world. That's what this fallen world has brought. Decay. Perishing. And it's because of sin. It is because Adam and his rebellion and sin has turned from God. We're all, we're, we're gradually, as creatures, we will all die one day. We're in the, you could even say in the process of dying, all of us, from the day you were born, the, the, the sword of death is hanging over you. Now that sword of death, eternal death, is removed through Jesus Christ. But in this current world, it is surrounded by death. As we age, things that were once easy to us become harder. Our bodies our clothes even wear away. Do you ever notice sometimes you put on a jumper or something and maybe it's a hole in part of the sleeve and you realize you have to throw it out. Things wear away. Buildings wear away. They become mere dust over time. But God in his reign is not subject to death or decay in any way, shape or form. But you might think to yourself and you might be asking yourself, did Jesus not die. Did he not go into the grave? You might be asking yourself. He did so voluntarily. But his body did not see corruption. Isn't that an amazing thing? Even though his body lay in the grave, he died. So that we may have life. But his body did not see any stench of death or corruption. It says in Acts 2 verses 25 to 27... 
For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now that word translated there, hell, is the, is the Greek word Hades. And that can also be, depending on the context, understood as the grave. The grave. And this is quoting from Psalm 16. His body would go into the grave and not see corruption. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Jesus' body in the grave did not decay. His reign is sinless, spotless, perfect, and holy. It is without change. It cannot change. Shouldn't these things and other things make us value him more? You know, people even today, they're crying out, aren't they, for even politicians and leaders of integrity, of people who will say what they mean and mean what they say. It's such a rarity. But, dear friends, we have the greatest leader ever in Jesus Christ, who is perfect and who does all that he says without, per- without blemish, without decay, without anything. And that is a rare, rare jewel, isn't it, to be treasured in our day. Not something to be taken lightly, regardless of what age you are, regardless of what, how, what station you have in life. This is something extraordinary, rare. Christ is glorious. He is radiant. He is precious. He is magnificent. He is, he is brightness. He is splendor. Because we see these things about him. We see his moral character. We see how good he is in in every single aspect of where he's different to us. And these are the things that make us appreciate him. And then when we think to ourselves, yes, to God alone be the glory. And it makes more sense, doesn't it? The more we know of him, the more we know about Christ, the more we know about this great and mighty king, the more we think, yes, to God alone be the glory. He is glorious, worthy of all honor, because he is this rare and precious jewel. Does it show you, dear friends, how every aspect of our lives needs to be shaped around the word of the living God? It needs to be shaped around the scriptures. That's what it looks like. To God alone be the glory. Here is wisdom. Here is joy. Here is life found only in the scriptures so that we can come into the presence of Almighty God. And it is a pleasure to us because God is a sweet-smelling aroma to us. And through Christ, then, when we come before him, we, through Christ, are a sweet-smelling aroma before the Father. Something to delight in. No longer with the stench of death. No longer with that odor and decay of death. No, no, replaced with a pleasant and well-pleasing aroma. A sweetness. There's a joy. Have you ever come across, I mean, some of you might like gardening. And you come across certain flowers and it just makes you happy when you smell them. 
there's or food you might have a smell as an aroma coming from the kitchen and it makes you happy dear friends through Christ because of Christ for the glory of Christ if you have trusted in him you God delights in you through Christ the stench of death is removed and we by being changed and conformed we delight more and more in him because he is a pleasant aroma the thing is dear friends sometimes our own taste buds our own smells our own we need to change to delight in what is good and wonderful and glorious number three now god's unfathomable reign god's unfathomable reign now unto the king eternal immortal and now we're going to look at invisible invisible god is a spirit invisible to our human eyes we cannot see him How do we see the glory and honor of God here in this world? We don't physically see him. If we said someone was invisible in a group, we may not think that that is very uh, impressive. But what if we talk about something in this case here that we cannot explain? We cannot wrap our minds around. He is so great, so wonderful. We cannot explain God in human, creaturely, mechanical terms, because he is so different. When speaking of the invisible work of the Spirit of God, Jesus said this in, in John 8, 3, 8, the wind bloweth, and this is kind of the, the wind in, in, in the scriptures in the Old Testament, can be translated either wind or spirit, but the wind bloweth where it listeth, or wants, And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell where it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The wind blows basically and goes where it wants to. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from. So is everyone born of the Spirit. And we experience this. You You will evangelize people. You might be witnessing to somebody for five years. No progress. They might be very friendly. And then you you witness to another person. And they're very antagonistic to the gospel. And you think, I don't know if that person's ever going to get saved. They ring you a week later and they tell you they've come to know the Lord. The life is gloriously changed. With your friendly work colleague, you keep witnessing to them years and years later. They're very respectful, but they still don't know the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. We cannot wrap our minds around, can we? How he does this. We can't really explain it. We just know he's all powerful. We see the effects of this. Uh, we see the changes that God does. We, we, we see uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see his handiwork all around us. But we can't say, well, this is how he did it. The wind goes where it wants to, but you do not know where it comes from, where it's going. It is unfathomable, which otherwise means it means immeasurable or impossible to comprehend. For us, finite, 
and our human minds, we cannot wrap our minds around this God who is invisible. We cannot. The how and the full ways of God's controlling every part of the world, we see the results and what he does. We see evidence of the wonders of his invisible hand. We see answers to prayer. We should give thanks to God for this. But do we understand how? We know he does it. Could we replicate it in the lab? Not at all. Your new birth in Christ, dear Christian. How did he do that? Yes, the Spirit of God giving you a heart of flesh, removing that heart of stone. That's the effect. His reign is unfathomable. How did he take away your heart of stone? The fact of the matter is, dear friends, if you are here this morning and you are worshipping God in your heart, he did because of him, for his glory. We can't understand how. We cannot see it, nor just with our physical eyes, but our mind cannot grasp it. We think of the triune God. One God. Not three gods. One God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It leaves us in a sense of awe. He is glorious. He is special. He is unique. Have you ever watched something on YouTube and you say, wow, that's amazing. How did he do that? And you share it to somebody else. I can't believe he did that. You might see somebody playing piano, playing guitar, or something like that. And they're just, their talent is amazing. And you want to share it with other people. Uh, we value what they've done. We think, wow, this is a one in a million talent. And if we ever met them in person, we'd probably tell them how impressed we were with what they did. What about that praise, that special praise that was due to God alone? He does something far more incredible than anything we'll ever see in a YouTube channel or a video or anywhere for that matter. Has there ever been another man or angel who's spoken something into existence? Has there ever been another man or angel has ever given life from the dead? Save them from their sin, give them a new heart. We would not know where to begin to even do such a thing. He is invisible. He is unfathomable. Due to him is all the glory and the praise. Let us value what he does. So our final point, number four, this morning, is God's unequaled reign. God's unequaled reign. So we looked at his unchanging reign, his undying reign, his unfathomable reign, and finally, number four, God's unequaled reign. God's, what God does is so deep, we cannot comprehend it. It is so profound. His reign cannot be matched by any other reign that has ever or ever will come to place on this earth. 
God is what wisdom is. It says in our text here, verse 17, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So this only wise God is the only one who can be called wise in this way. And again, we must not think of God like us. We maybe have a tiny bit of wisdom. And then, but God has the maximum amount of that wisdom. God is wisdom. We may love. We may have love for certain things. But God is love. I point this out, dear friends, because I, I fear in modern days we've lost the distinction between the creature and the creator. Between the infinite and the finite. The danger is we think of God as merely the most perfect version of ourselves. That's a scary place to be. God is all wise. All knowing. If you study kingdoms from history, rulers, you'll notice one thing about them. All of them made mistakes. Every single last one of them. Any ruler will make a mistake. They do things that show they are, but weak human beings, no matter how much genius they have, no matter how skillful they are, they will make mistakes. But every single part of God's reign over this universe is wise. Every single last part of it. And the word translated in the Old Testament largely, wisdom, has a sense of skill. And when the Bible uses wisdom, it has this idea, not just, yes, wisdom in an intellectual sense, but also a skill. The Greek and Hebrew terms both have that kind of idea, skill or, or of experience. There is a limit on the skill or experience of any mere human being has. And this is before we even bring into the question of sin. But there's a limit. But God does all things perfectly. He does all things to glorify himself. They bring him glory. They, they show his splendor. They show his magnificence. They, they show his excellence. They show his majesty. They show his brightness and his glory. That's why everything he does is wise. But he is wisdom itself. If you go to Proverbs chapter 8, in that chapter it talks about how God, and Jesus Christ specifically, is wisdom personified. He is wisdom and he does all things. He is the only wise God. His ways are better than ours. They're always going to be better than ours. It's not just sometimes. It's not just like sometimes you'll have an idea and, well, maybe the Spirit of God has led you toward that conclusion, maybe through studying the Scriptures, maybe through other means. But His ways are always superior to our ways. Whatever we want to do with our lives, the more we're conformed to His image, the wiser our decisions will be in our life. 
Have you ever thought about this as we complain about our lot in life? We may be going through difficult times. There may be people here this morning going through really difficult, trying times. Other people in this building may not know of the difficulties and the struggles you are going through. But who is in control of the circumstances of your life? Is he not wise? We may not see at this moment in time why you're going through what you're going through. Why you're waking up in the middle of the night with, with stress and strain. As a, Lord, why am I going through this specific situation? He knows, and there's a good, righteous, and holy reason when Joseph was being sold into slavery. I dare say he did not completely understand why that was happening to him. Thirteen years later, he sees it. He sees later on that what the brothers did was evil. But what God meant it for was for good. Everything he does is wise. And when you're going through something difficult, the best thing you can ask yourself is, Oh Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this situation? All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. All works together for good because he is the only wise God. Makes us think, doesn't it, differently about our circumstances in life. About the things we may have prayed about and were not, in our eyes, answered. The pain, the sicknesses, the sufferings, the, the loneliness or the, the pressure you were under. God governs the situations in our life. And he's allowed you, dear one, to go through these things. Perhaps he's teaching us patience. Perhaps he's teaching us to empathize with the suffering of others by going through our, that kind of suffering ourselves. But whatever the good reason is that God has, he has good, holy, and righteous reasons. A wise reason with a, with a wisdom we do not have. A wisdom. And the more we see this wisdom, the more we see the beauty of him. The more we say and think of him, be honor. And that's an honor there is the idea of value, precious, a highest value. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory. We think of him as magnificent. We think of him as radiant splendor. We think of him as pure perfection. And the more we do that, the more we'll depend on him and gladly pray to him. A man who trusts in his own wisdom will not see the glory and splendor and the magnificence and the beauty of the wisdom of God. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not in thine own understanding. Proverbs 3 verse 5. That his ways are higher. His ways are better. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55 verse 9. Do you see what Isaiah is speaking about here? It's not just poetry. His ways are better. He is the only wise God. In 1 Corinthians 1.25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Now, we're mere creatures. We cannot fathom the difference between God's wisdom and our wisdom. But it's in another category entirely. To him alone is this honor due. To him alone be honor and glory. Paul wrote this to Timothy so that he would make much of God. This verse. To make much of God. Paul is dealing with issues that are coming up. um, Issues of dealing with the law. Issues with fables and endless genealogies. And other things that come up in the life of the church. In any church. But he wants Timothy in this verse to think much of God, not of himself. Not just the fact that I was so changed. Look how marvelously I was changed. Verse 13, it was once, it was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. He's making much of God through all these things. God uses means. God uses mere instruments such as us. But in all that is done, may we think much of our God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Do you value him, dear friend? Spend time with him, with our God. Close the door in the most private part of your house. Take away the mobile phone. Take away all the distractions you possibly can. And open your Bible. It's not about how much you read or anything. Spend time alone with them. Even if you just read a chapter, you'd be surprised. Maybe even get rid of the watch. And you're there for an hour and you didn't even realize it. Have you ever been with a dear friend and you lose track of time? That is when your relationship with God will be at its sweetest. When you love to hear his voice from his word. You love to call upon him. You love to depend upon him. You love to tell him all of the things that are in your heart. Not just say, oh, he knows what's going on in my heart. But he wants you, dear friend, in prayer to tell you these things. He wants you, dear friend, to cry out to him for help in these areas. And that through all these things, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.